So um, I have a friend who is really excited about his church. He doesn't live in this state, so I'm not talking about any of you. Um, No, he's really excited about his church. He grew up in the church, uh, but later in life as he became an adult, he really began to drift away from the church. He kind of kept going, but he wasn't interested in it. It it didn't play a big role in his life. Uh, Honestly, he was dissatisfied with the churches of his childhood and youth, the churches of his young adulthood. They just seemed irrelevant. Irrelevant to, to life, uh, irrelevant to the world around him. And, and so he just began to drift away. But then he found his new church. And everything changed for my friend. I was actually kind of shocked. Uh, he, he's like serving on various teams in his church. He's really involved. He tells his friends about it. He tells his work colleagues about it. He tells his clients about it. At least some of his kids are into this church as well. I'm not sure all of them are, but at least some of them are. And I'm sure that further stokes his excitement about this church. And it's just really evident to see this change in him. So um, once I I just had the chance to ask him, like, why do you like this church so much? And his answer was quick and sure. This church, he said, is growing They're getting noticed locally, even nationally. Things are happening here. And frankly, as a businessman, it just felt great to be part of something that was successful. After spending so long as a a kid, as youth, in, in, in churches that seemed utterly irrelevant to the world he lived in. Now, I think my friend is not unusual. Most churches in the United States have less than 100 people in them. But most evangelical Christians are in large churches. Our size are even larger, even mega churches. Now, Americans have always liked to be associated with with success, right? This This is what we're into. We are into success, even in religion. But I don't want to harsh out on Americans this morning. Have human beings anywhere ever wanted to be associated with losers and losing? I think not. I don't think that's just an American thing. I think that's a pretty human thing. And that honestly makes explaining Christianity kind of difficult. How did a religion that followed an obscure itinerant preacher who was executed by the Romans in the most shameful manner possible, how did it ever even attract its first converts, much less grow into the largest religion in the world? What what could have overcome the stigma right there at the beginning and continuing. What could have overcome the stigma of being associated with a loser like Jesus? Well, that is the issue that the Apostle Paul is going to address in our passage this morning. We're we're moving through 1 Corinthians. We've come to our third study. 
And, and particularly if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure you're a Christian, I, I think this passage is going to be of interest to you. Because the question that I really want you to wrestle with this morning is, what would cause anyone to believe the message about Jesus, given what a strange message it is, given what a kind of unsuccessful person he was? What would cause anyone to actually believe that message? What would cause you to believe that message? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provided, it's found on page 1011, 1011. We're going to be looking at uh, chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 5. But I want to start by reading the last verse that we looked at last week, verse 17. So let me just read chapter 1, verse 17, as you turn uh, to this passage. Paul says, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. We thought about last week how Paul had urged the Corinthians to be uniters around Christ, not dividers around their favorite preachers. And in verse 17, we get the first hint as to why they were doing that. It wasn't that different preachers were preaching different gospels. It's that some preachers in Corinth were just more impressive than other preachers. They were clearly winners, and people wanted to be associated with them. Corinthians are a lot like Americans, right? We want to be around winners, not losers. Paul wanted them, I think Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wants us to understand why he preached the way he did, why he preached in such a way that he kind of appeared to be a loser talking about a loser, and why the Corinthians were using the wrong measure of success as they evaluated their own church, as they evaluated Paul, as they evaluated their own Christian lives. Here, I think, is the point of the verses that we're going to look at. We'll put it on the screen. It's the message of the cross, not the magnificence of the ministry that matters. Yes, I worked on that. It's the message of the cross, not the magnificence of the ministry that matters. Our passage is going to break down into three sections. We're going to consider first the message of the cross. Second, we're going to consider the measure of the people Third, we're going to consider the magnificence of the ministry. So if you're a note taker, that's, that's kind of the plan. That's where we're going. I, I gave any here who are not Christians something to think about. Now let me give something to those of you who are Christians, which I would take to be most of you, uh, and especially those of you who are members of this church, something for you to think about. As we think about how Paul pursued success, I want you to be thinking about the ministry of your own church. For many of you, it's this church. And I want you to to just consider, how are you evaluating it? Are you measuring the ministry of the church that you're a part of correctly? Okay. Well, let's walk through this passage together. First, the message of the cross. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. 
For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it is the power of God to us who are being saved. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of what is preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom. And God's weakness is stronger than human strength. All right, now, if Paul at this point sounds slightly defensive, it's because he is, right? As I mentioned at the outset, some there in Corinth thought that he wasn't much of a preacher. Or, or at least he should have preached differently. He should have preached more like, like Apollos preached, for example, so Paul sets out at this point now to kind of defend himself, and he's going to defend himself for a while. Like, we're going to be looking at it this week, we're going to be looking at it again next week. He's going to defend himself a little bit. He's going to explain himself, and that's what he starts to do here. He explains. He says, look, the message of the cross, what he calls the word of the cross there in verse 18, the message of the cross is the power of God for salvation. It just is. And so that's what I preach. Now, he knows not everybody recognizes that. Uh, there, there's a whole group of people whom he refers to as those who are perishing. For them, the message of the cross is bonkers town. It is literally crazy. It is foolish. Why would anyone believe it? And I think, actually, we don't do ourselves any favor as Christians by dismissing that. Right? It kind of is bonkers town. It's understandable, I think, why people would think that the, the, the cross and the message of the cross is just foolish, maybe a myth or, or, or a wives' tale, or, or certainly not something that reasonable, serious people would, would, would pay attention to. If we were going to design salvation, right, if we were going to plan out how would God rescue humanity, I think it's pretty obvious the way we would design it, according to our own wisdom. We would send a powerful Savior, not a weak one. We, when, he, when he came, he would accomplish an obvious victory over evil. Like, evil would just be gone, and it'd be really clear. He certainly would not die a shameful death on a cross. I think if we were designing salvation, right, the, the salvation that this hypothetical Savior brings would, would actually be a salvation that ennobles us, that allows us to feel actually better about ourselves, M maybe even helps us become a better version of ourselves. We certainly, we certainly wouldn't design a salvation that is not through our effort, but instead is through faith, just believing in something as foolish as a crucified and resurrected Savior. Now, I say all of that really confidently. This is what we would do. 
Why do I say that? Well, look around. Look around at all the other religions of the world. Every single one of them, when you really begin to dig down into the details, they are designed to help us help ourselves. They're designed to help us be better, be, be good enough to get to God, to somehow transcend ourselves and so reach heaven. When human beings create religions, if all the other religions of the world are anything to go by, this is what we do. Or, or forget religion. Look, look at our secular efforts. Right? Think about the way today people who don't think of themselves as religious at all are very much seeking kind of the, the promised land as it were, as they try to use technology to, to hack our, our biological systems, to improve ourselves so that we can be the very best biological specimens we can be. Uh, people are even now talking about using technology to, to put off death. Maybe forever there are people working on this. We know what we would do if we could create our own religion and salvation because we've been really busy doing it for a long time. I don't have to speculate on this one. We're already doing it. But where has it gotten us? Religious wars continue to rage across our globe. Technology, which promises so much, seems rather to be being used against us and against our weaknesses to manipulate us, to get us to buy more, to get us to do things that maybe otherwise we wouldn't have thought of doing. That's what happens when we try to save ourselves. God is not like us. Praise God. <laughs> he is not like us. He decided to save humanity through the message of the cross the message of the cross. And Paul explains here in these verses, really, that he did this for two reasons. He decided to save us through the message of the cross because, one, he is determined to frustrate human pride in human wisdom. And then, on the other hand, he is determined to reward human faith in God's wisdom. Let's start with the human pride. Look there in, in verse 19. Paul quotes Isaiah. We, we heard this passage read earlier in the service. He quotes Isaiah, who says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I will set aside the intelligence of the intelligent. God, God in that passage, condemned the people of Israel for their, their man-made religion of, of rules that, that kept them from actually understanding and trusting God's plan. But Paul doesn't stay there. Then in like verse 20, he kind of broadens it out. It's, it's not just... It's, it's not just the Jews back in Isaiah's day. No, it's, it's, it's the worldly wise. It's, it's the philosophers of his own day. Where is the one who is wise? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the debater, the philosopher of this age? I think if you were writing today, he'd include the tech bros. He'd include the cultural activists, the cultural warriors. Where are they? Where have, they, where have they gotten us? Then, now, it's, it's kind of all the same. They've all failed. They've all failed to find God. They've all failed, maybe you don't like the category of God, they've all failed to find ultimate answers. They, they've, they've all failed to even find like a reliable path to get there wherever there is. 
And Paul's point is that's not an accident. That's God's design. For since in God's wisdom, verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness, the foolishness of what is preached. We cannot, through our own wisdom, kind of starting with ourselves, starting with the world around us, we cannot win our way to God. We can't even get close to finding him. Instead, God was pleased, meaning, meaning he had determined, he had decided in advance to save us through faith in his wisdom. What's his wisdom? His wisdom is the apparent foolishness of a message about a crucified savior. The foolishness, he says there in verse 21, of what is preached. Now he knows that both Jew and Greek, which he means Gentile, which basically means everybody, right? Because you got the Jews and then you got the Gentiles and the Gentiles are people who are not Jews. So that's like everybody. He, he, he knows that like everybody's going to find this impossible. Jews want a sign from God. I, I think there are a lot of people like that who want a sign. This, this request for a sign, we see it all over the Gospels. Je- Jesus interacting with the, with the, the people of Israel, the, the leaders, they're, they're constantly asking for a sign. What, what were they asking for there? Well, they were asking for proof from heaven that he was the Messiah. Proof that they wouldn't have to trust, right? Proof that they required no faith on their part, but that, that almost overwhelmed and compelled them. Why did they want proof? Why were they unwilling to trust? Well, because to trust would mean having to admit that they had gotten it wrong. They were wrong about themselves. They were wrong about God. Greeks, on the other hand, wanted wisdom. Philosophy. They would kind of answer all of their questions, satisfy all of their skepticism. And of course, in so doing, exalt and vindicate their own intelligence. Right? Because I'm not going to believe anything until I am utterly and completely abused, uh, disabused of, of any any questions whatsoever. Neither could accept the divine wisdom of the cross. The Jews found the idea of a, of a suffering savior to be a, a stumbling block. That's what Paul calls it there in verse 23. Literally, it was, it was scandalous. The, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles understood the shame of the cross to be so disgusting that only a fool would be interested in such a thing. But despite the apparent folly, despite the apparent unreasonableness of the preaching of the cross, Paul insists that for those God has called, the cross of Christ is both the power of God 
and the wisdom of God. You see that there in verse 24. To those who are called, both Jew and Greek, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God because the cross actually accomplished our rescue from sin and Satan and death. And it is the wisdom of God because in his wisdom, God knew how to accomplish what we could not accomplish. The simultaneous satisfaction of his justice, which leaves us condemned, and the salvation of his people. Friends, he's talking about the good news of the gospel here. The good news of the gospel is that through Christ's life, death, and resurrection, all who do nothing more than believe in him are saved. They're saved. God the Father sent God the Son in the person of Jesus to live our life, to take on human flesh and to live, as we confessed earlier today, a completely human life. Anointed by God the Spirit, Jesus did what all of us have failed to do. He lived a life that perfectly pleased God. But then Jesus willingly and out of love for his people, offered his life as a substitute for us. He, he took our place. He represented us on the cross, taking on God's judgment, not because he deserved it, but because we do. He paid our penalty, was dead and buried. But the gospel doesn't end there with a crucified Savior. Death could not hold him because sin was not in him. He got up from the dead. And now Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. All who repent and put their faith in him are not condemned. But instead, we are, we are forgiven. We're saved from God's wrath on the last day. Even now, we're given Jesus' life, his eternal life, the life of heaven itself. What's the difference then between those who believe that message and those who find that message that I just explained foolish? Is it something about you? Is the difference between those who believe and those who are perishing sort of like the difference in my, my kids, right? I've got kids who, when they taste cilantro, taste soap. And then others who taste deliciousness. They got my genes. Um, or, or like, you know, it's not just like grapefruit. Some people find grapefruit impossibly bitter and others find it really sweet, right? Well, what's the difference between those people with something in you? you? You either got the genes for soapy cilantro or you didn't get the genes for soapy cilantro. Is, is that what it's about? Is, is it something about you? Like, like maybe people who are more weak-minded believe and people that are more hard-nosed and sharp-minded don't believe? Or, or, or people that are really needy believe? And people that, you know, are getting on in life and they're not needy, they don't believe. Is that the difference between those who are being saved and those who are perishing? Paul couldn't be more clear. The answer to the question, what's, what's the difference, is not in you. It's in God. It's in the God who calls. It's in the God who takes initiative. 
If, if you are going to be one who believes this message, God must intervene. He must take the initiative. He must call because all that he calls hear that message, believe and are saved. So then you say, well, what do I do? If, it's, if God's got to take the initiative, what do I do? I'll tell you what to do. Call on him. Call on the Lord. Ask him to save you. Ask him to give you ears to hear. Ask him to give you a mind that understands the beauty and the truth of the message of the cross. Because I promise you, God will not turn away any who call on him. Yes, he must call you first. But the way you prove that he has is by calling on him yourself. What could convince you to believe the message of the gospel? The question that I asked right at the start? Well, the answer is only God can. But God will. Ask him. Henson, we need to really take this to heart. We cannot work from ourselves to God. We can't start with ourselves and intuit who God is, what God is like, what will please him. We cannot therefore work from what makes sense in the world to what will actually work spiritually. Now, this is what we do all the time in the church. It's called pragmatism. Pragmatism is just a, a way of going about life and, and kind of figure out, well, what works? And if it works, then it's right. We should do that. Pragmatism simply, well, I mean, it's a great thing if like you're trying to fix your leaky faucet. At the end of the day, I don't care what makes the leak stop as long as the leak stops. If it works, it's good. But it doesn't work in the church. It does not work as a philosophy of ministry. For one thing, it, it starts in the wrong place. It, it starts with what appears to make sense to people whose minds are fallen, to, to people who, who hate God naturally. The, the, the problem with ministry that, that's designed around the non-Christian and that says, okay, well, what would non-Christians like? We'll do that because that then will work in ministry. The problem with ministry designed that way is that put, it puts in charge the one mindset on this earth that absolutely cannot get to God and never will on its own. We're not dealing today with friends and family, neighbors who are non-Christians who are asking for signs. We're not dealing with people, probably they're even asking for wisdom. What do Americans want? Well, they're maybe like my friend at the beginning, right? They want relevance as they define it. Uh, they, they want comfort and convenience. That, that serves them. They want authenticity, right? They, they, they want a God and a religion that will allow them to be who they know deep in their hearts themselves truly to be. They're asking for a better world now. Heaven on earth. Heaven on earth without the God of heaven. 
You know, they're, they're, they're fine things about a lot of what I just mentioned. There's nothing wrong with convenience. There's nothing wrong with comfort. There's, there's nothing wrong in one sense with relevance. But here's the thing. None of those things save from the wrath to come. And giving people those things doesn't move them an inch away from hell and, or an inch toward heaven. Only the message of the cross does that. Which is why here at Henson, we want to be not about like, oh, let's figure out what works. No, we want to be clear on what's true. What actually saves? And this is why we prioritize preaching. It's, we, don't, we don't center preaching in our weekly gathering because it's pragmatically more effective in getting people to respond. That's not why we do it. We definitely don't center preaching in our weekly gathering because I really like to preach and I've convinced you to pay me to do it. That's not why we're doing this. It, it's, it's not because we're just old-fashioned conservatives. We prioritize preaching, and not just preaching, but teaching, proclaiming the message of the cross whenever and wherever we can, because this is God's means to save sinners from his wrath and to his love. And so even though I'd much rather, actually, because you're more fun, spend uh, uh, more time with, with you in meetings and doing things throughout the week, I take two days every week, and I kind of wall it off from you so that I can prepare a sermon. It's why we try to make sure almost everything we do here is centered around the word of the cross, whether that's in our Sunday school classes or our Bible studies, our women's ministry, or frankly, even just our one-on-one -on -one meetings. As we get together with each other, we want to be talking with each other about the word of the cross because it is that word that saves. This is how God saves sinners. This is how God changes sinners like us, to be more like him. It is through the message of the cross. And the proof, Paul says, is you. You, the people that God has saved. Which leads us to the second point, which is much shorter. The measure of the people. The measure of the people. Look at verse 26. Brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So at this point, having explained why he preaches the way he does, Paul points to the Corinthians themselves as proof that what he's saying about the message of the cross and what he's saying about the upside-down nature of God's kingdom is true. He says, like, just look at yourselves. Like, seriously, look at yourselves. When you were called, were you impressive by worldly standards? N no, you weren't. And if you're not sure if I'm talking about the Corinthians now or you, just live in that ambiguity. <laughs> 
It'll be good for you. See, this is the point. God is not in the business of exalting human pride. No, he deliberately saves those who are not impressive by a worldly standard in order to shame the wise and the strong and the intelligent, as as we see there in verse 27 and 28. It is an upside-down kingdom that God is building here that points to his glory, not ours, where, where the last are first and the first are last, as Jesus said. And what I find so amazing about this is that it's so very clear right here. Like Paul, it it would be hard for Paul to be more clear. And yet, it runs counter to so much that has been promoted amongst evangelical ministry ever since I was a kid. We've been told for the last 30 plus years that that if we're going to reach the culture, we have to reach the gatekeepers first. And so we have built one evangelical ministry after another, and churches have oriented themselves in order to focus almost exclusively on the, on the privileged, on the powerful. I mean, I was, I, I used, as you know, I used to be a pastor in Washington, D.C., and a really important ministry there that people haven't heard of, but they've seen the evidence of. is called The Fellowship. They run the National Prayer Breakfast. And their whole philosophy of ministry is the only way that the kingdom of God moves forward is if we can win the powerful first, because the powerful are the way that the church will be able to go forward. But it's not just a group like that, which is not a good ministry at all. I mean, we we see it in the kind of priorities that that show up in in student ministry, like like Young Life, sadly, or or college ministries, or, or even in the mission field. And the philosophy runs like this, get the cool kids first and the rest will follow. Get the cool kids first, and the rest will follow. Now, it makes sense. It does make sense. Probably, if you can get the cool kids to a meeting, a bunch of the other kids will come too. Does that have anything to do with salvation? Yes, the cool kids need Jesus, for sure. But I wonder if evangelicals have ever read 1 Corinthians. God is not interested in the smart crowd or the rich crowd or the powerful crowd. He doesn't need them in order to reach everybody else. He already has everything he needs in the power of his call and in the wisdom of the message of the cross. We need to take this to heart, brothers and sisters. Everything we need he says there, righteousness, there, there in verse um, 30, which is a right standing with God. Sanctification, being set aside so, so as to belong to God. Redemption, being set free from our slavery to sin and brought into the freedom of fellowship with God. Everything we need, we have in Christ. God took the initiative. He called us in Christ, and then through Christ, he has made us what we should be. We aren't aren't wise in ourselves. We haven't attained to anything that can make us feel better about ourselves. Jesus Christ is our wisdom, and Jesus Christ is the only justification that we need. And so our boast, Paul says, if we have one, is in the Lord. 
You understand that on the last day, no one is going to say to God, God, I followed Paul, or I followed Apollos, or I was with Peter, or I stood firm with Dever, or Piper, or John MacArthur, so we're good, right, God? Because I was with the right guy. No one's going to say that. If we're not going to say it then, why would we take so much pride in it now? We follow Christ. We follow Christ. In Him is our hope. In Him is our boast. And we need to remember, He didn't call us because of what we brought to the table, like to, to, to help Him in His work and ministry. No, he brought everything to the table and then invited us there. Brothers and sisters, it is so easy to forget where we came from and who we were before Christ saved us. And you know what happens when we forget? We we begin to think, you know, how much better we are than those people out there or those people on a different team we begin to feel superior. Or if we a different kind of personality type, we begin to feel fearful. Fearful of those people out there. Fearful of those people on the other team. And we begin to think they're the enemy. And friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Some of us in this room, members of this church, we're addicts before Christ called. We're sexually immoral. We're, we're experiencing and acting on same-sex attraction. Some of us in this room before Christ called us were selfish and self-centered, pushing people aside, pursuing our own interests and our own advantage at every turn. This is who we were. Not many of us came from families of, of wealth or power. This is not a room, and now I'm removing the ambiguity. This is not a room filled with people whom the world considered impressive before Jesus got a hold of you. And now that Jesus has got a hold of you, the world still doesn't think you're impressive. Here's the thing that's a feature, not a bug. That's part of the design. That's part of the plan. And we need to remember that. We should be on our guard against putting our confidence and pride in the wrong place, whether that's in us or in the human beings that we've associated ourselves with. At the same time, I want to say to you, especially you as a Christian, don't give in to the temptation to view yourself in light of the world's measure of success. Okay, so you are significant and insignificant in the world's eyes. So what? So, so you are looked down upon by the high and the mighty, the, the rich and the powerful, the, the, the coastal elites. Who gives a rip? Who cares? On the last day, it will be those 
who put their hope in the world's measure of success that will be ashamed. They are the ones that will be ashamed, not you. Instead, on the last day, if your hope is in Christ, you know what's going to happen? God is going to hold you up as proof of his wisdom, his power, his glory, in order to shame those who put their hope in the wrong place. He chose you not because you're impressive, but so that all would see on the last day how impressive he is. Boast in Christ today. Let that be where your hope is. Let that be where your peace is. Boast in Christ today. And on the last day, you will not be ashamed. The message of the cross is the power of God for salvation. And we are the proof. So what does that mean for our church's ministry? Well, that leads third and finally, and also briefly, to the magnificence of ministry, the magnificence of ministry. Look at chapter two, verse one. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, announcing the mystery of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit's power so that your faith might not be based on human wisdom, but on God's power. All right, so Paul now finally comes all the way back around to where he left off in verse 17 of chapter 1. And once again, he's defending his preaching and what the Corinthians considered to be a very unimpressive ministry. And Paul points out, well, look, people, since it's the power of the cross and not the polish of the preacher... Because that's what saves the power of the cross, not the polish of the preacher. I gave myself to what mattered. I gave myself to preaching, proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see that there in verse two. Paul was really deliberate in not relying on the best cultural methods at his disposal. You've got the brilliance of Greco-Roman oratory. And they were brilliant. You can, you can ask Bond, who teaches these guys. They were brilliant. These were guys that were so good at their craft, they could get paid to persuade you of almost anything. The tech bros have nothing on those guys. But he, he didn't avail himself of that. He also didn't avail himself of, of Greek philosophy. No, instead, he preached the mystery of God, the gospel. And he did it in weakness and in fear and in trembling. Verse 3. He wasn't trying to impress anyone. I mean, the Corinthians are saying, Paul, you're not very impressive. We want to go with Apollos. He's like, I wasn't trying to impress you. Because being more impressive doesn't save more people. Brothers and sisters, that's as true for me and for you in your own personal evangelism as it was for Paul. I think so often we get this wrong, right? We think it's our fault that people don't believe when we share the gospel. We just weren't good enough at it. We weren't polished enough. Couldn't answer all the questions. Or, or we just failed to share the gospel at all because we just decided in advance, I won't be able to pull this off, so I'm not even going to try. 
and keep our mouths shut. Or, or I love this one. Uh, you know, you should come to church. <laughs> there are people better at it than me at church. They'll be able to explain it to you. Let the professionals do it. We're afraid that we're going to come off looking foolish. So we keep our mouths shut. In those moments, brothers and sisters, you and I both need to remember Paul's words and his example. The power of God for salvation is in the message, not the ministry. It's in the proclamation, not the polish. It is about the message, not the messenger. All of the power of God for salvation is in the message of the cross. That should encourage us. Now, we, we shouldn't confuse Paul's rejection of worldly methods with laziness or sloppiness or imprecision, not really knowing what he's talking about, or apathy. Paul worked hard. He did. He actually understood rhetoric quite well. He employed it. It's quite evident in this letter. But it's just as obvious that when it comes to Paul, technique and rhetoric and method were not what he was depending on. His goal, as he shared the gospel, our goal, as we share the gospel, should be to demonstrate the truth of the gospel through what he calls there in verse 4, the power of the Spirit, not human power. And that's because he, just like we, he, he wanted their faith to be the real thing. Like if faith resulted from his preaching, he wanted it to be the real thing, a genuine saving faith based on God's power, not his persuasiveness. Not human wisdom. That's what he says there in verse 5. So how do we demonstrate the Spirit's power in our personal evangelism, in our preaching? Well, I have good news for you. You don't have to go out and perform miracles to display the Spirit's power. You don't have to go out and heal people or have, like, have words of prophecy there's actually nothing in the New Testament that suggests ordinary Christians employed miracles as proof in their evangelism so that everybody could see how powerful God and the gospel was. You don't have to do that. I got more good news for you. It's not by seeing huge response. It's not the size of the response that displays the power of God in your sharing of the gospel, in my sharing of the gospel. It's not by seeing huge numbers of people streaming down the aisles in response to a sermon. It's not by always getting to yes. For one thing, yes is really easy to manipulate, and that's the very thing Paul's against. One very well-known evangelist, if I said his name, you would know him immediately used to tell his volunteers for his crusades to wait to come down to the front until after he'd given the invitation so that the people who aren't volunteers look around and he's given the invitation and now they see all these people streaming forward and they think, well, other people believe this, I should go too. When they were just plants, Volunteers that were just going down front to receive the people that he knew his manipulation would cause to come forward. You don't have to do that. Now, I think we start by demonstrating the power of the Spirit 
by displaying the fruit of the Spirit. As we display love and joy, peace and patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness, and self-control in our evangelism, in our relationships with with friends, in in our conversations. Do you know what's on display? The Spirit's power is on display. I think we display the Spirit's power in our courage to open our mouths about the gospel and in our dependence upon him as we speak. Courage to tell the gospel straight, to not trim it, to fit what we think our audience wants to hear. Dependence when we venture forth, feeling our own weakness, feeling our inadequacy, but refusing to stop, refusing to make that an excuse, and and refusing to manipulate people or persuade people using false promises. No, when we tell the gospel, we share it with our friends. God will be faithful. Through that message, God will call those he is saving. And I think that's when we actually see the real magnificence of the ministry, the the real, the real miracle. As we see the dead raised to life, just by the speaking of words and those words being heard, believed, and depended upon. So brothers and sisters, how are you measuring the ministry of this church? How are you measuring your own ministry? Is it through our ever-growing numbers? Is it through our growing budget? Is it because the right people are here the right people are showing up. I mean, when I got here a little over 12 years ago, one of the first things that people told me was, you know, the, the chief of police of Portland used to attend this church. Great. <laughs> I guess that's the measure I'm going to be measured by. It, is it because you like my preaching and you find my preaching engaging? Is that the measure of the success of this church? Is it it because you found a ministry here that's meaningful? Is it because things are happening here? I'm so glad things are happening here. Brothers and sisters, a lot of those things, not all of them, but a lot of those things are fine. They're fine things. But it's not the measure of success of this church. When I look around and think about the success of our church, I'm massively encouraged because what I see is lives changed. I see men and women taking the message of the cross seriously. I see them applying it to their lives and walking alongside brothers and sisters, seeking to apply it in their lives and helping one another walk with Jesus faithfully. I see many of you who are timid and fearful evangelists be evangelists anyway. And open your mouth at work with your neighbors, with your family members to share the message about Jesus. Brothers and sisters, that's the measure of the success of this church. What has brought us here should keep us here.
We stand united under the cross because it's the message of the cross, not the magnificence of the ministry that saved us and that will save others. And that, and that's all that matters. Let's pray. Take a moment. Maybe consider whether or not you've been thinking about yourself and the message about Jesus in worldly ways. In ways that are too much about the wisdom of this world and not the wisdom of God. And just confess that to the Lord. Well, we, we do confess that we are so often driven by our own pride. We, we want to see our accomplishments. We want to see our wisdom on display. We want to see the things that, that we can do that we have brought to the table. And yet that's the true folly, Lord. Because our, our pride has done nothing to advance the kingdom of God. Our, our pride has done nothing to bring good into our own lives. So Lord, we pray that you would frustrate our pride and instead grow in us a faith in your wisdom, your means for salvation, your means for establishing and growing your kingdom and this church. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in the message of the cross. For we know it is the power of God for salvation. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.